This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Jason Healy, a senior research scholar at Columbia University, and we are discussing his latest paper, entitled um, Building a Defensible Cyberspace. Um, so here at the Loopcast, we wanted to, um, we stopped for a while, and then we're re-upping again on cybersecurity, the intersection of cybersecurity and policy. Because I think for multiple reasons, um, obviously, uh, the most obvious reason is that um, when you discuss cybersecurity, I think we, t- we tend to default to the glossiest, um, sexiest version of it, you know, Stuxnet, uh, Russians, Chinese hacking, U.S. hacking, the NSA, as opposed to getting into sort of the nitty-gritty of what is what is cybersecurity policy? What does it look like from the top down? Um, and then the second second part of that is is it's you know compared to other sort of policies that are out there in D.C., cybersecurity is relatively new, and um, we wanted to just you know, start this conversation with um, people who are not only practitioners, but policymakers and, you know, get their ideas and opinions on on this topic. So please welcome Jason Healy. So I want to maybe start off with a historical question in that when we, our last conversation was in 2012, 2013, I think. It's Years ago, <laughs> um, and then in, in the cybersecurity realm, you know, it almost feels like decades ago. But I want to maybe have you sort of describe the period from 2013 to 2017 for us in, in just broad historical terms, and then we'll, we'll get into this discussion of policy and then the paper. <clears throat> yeah, when when last we talked, it was around the time when. My book came out. It was called A Fierce Domain, and it was a history of cyber conflict from 1986 to 2012. And uh, it covered uh, that period because 1986 was the f- clearly the first um, cyber conflict, uh, which we, which I, I thought was was obviously uh, uh, an incident called the Cuckoo's Egg which was a Soviet KGB espionage operation. And, and we said it started in, in 1986 because it had all of these dynamics. Right? You had um, the defender, a guy named Clostol, the difficulty trying to brace back. He had to in, invent things like honeypot to try and uh, keep the bad guy in his system. And the basic dynamics of, of the interaction between the attacker and the defender um, are are extremely the same if you're looking at an APT one or APT thirty four kind of kind of incident uh, today. And we looked at a few different phases that cyber conflict had 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 gone through. You know, kind of from exploration into um, the period from two thousand and three or so onward was you know professionalization, and then uh, we called it militarization, um, where you saw that increasingly it being a national security space. You know, the, the concern was less about, ooh, those hackers, we wave our fists at the hackers, to, 
to, wow, no, the, the military is really taking this seriously. And that the period from 2012 onward has really been um, uh, even scarier than we thought uh, it was going to be. You know, the trend that I talked about at the end of that book was uh, we're going to see this increasing transport militarization. We're going to see it's going to get increasingly more dangerous. Um, no one had died of a cyber attack. We said that's probably going to be changing as we, as we look forward. Um, and unfortunately, I think those trends have probably been even worse than we thought. Um, we're, maybe we're, we've hit the point where someone's died from a cyber attack with WannaCry, right, with, with affecting National Health Service in, in the UK, where someone might have died uh, maybe not directly, like the pacemakers thought, but certainly the, the postponing surgeries. Um, and if there's anything that catches me in t- 2012, it's been the intrusion of, well, one is the increasing audacity of, of how adversaries use these capabilities. Um, I was at a conference the other day in the the general that runs Army Cyber Command said that he thought the drivers for cyber conflict were people and technology, and boy, that doesn't seem right to me. It seems to me that, that it's the audacity of, of adversaries that's driving cyber conflict. And also, one of the big changes has been, um, so uh, one is not audacity. Two is we finally had national security significant cyber incidents. In 2012, it was easy for me to write and say, it's easy. We can dis- you can, to some degree, you can dismiss cyber because you haven't had any national security significant incidents yet. Easy to say that in 2012. Um, Shamoon, Stuxnet. I mean, yeah, those were important, but they weren't. Uh, they weren't um, of the scale of things that we normally, when we think about national security significant incidents, certainly against the U.S. And now, at the hacking of the DNC, we certainly crossed that line, and that hits of. of cyber finally crossing into um, these resounding, echoing national security incidents that will um, be with us for a long time. But, and this is the third point, the cyber incidents have been important in a different way than we thought in 2012. Um, Since around 2003, the military forgot about information operations and influence. And they were only focusing on these cybers, you know, and, and the actual direct impact of the hack. And it turns out in the last couple of years that some of the most um, important national security cyber incidents have been less important for the cyber aspect of it than what happened with the information. You know, look at Sony. Um, it was a doxing incident. Look at what was happened with DNC. It wasn't the hack that was particularly in- interesting from a national security standpoint. It was what happened with the information afterwards. So I'm going to um, switch footing and, and go from history to policy. And, and I'm going to ask this in, in maybe twofold. And what do you see as the ideal role for policy, like policymakers? But then also, the, I, you know, contrast that with what has been the reality of policymakers sort of engaging in this space. Yeah, so, so right now I'm with, um, I'll answer that in two ways. So right now I'm with Columbia University, um, the, the School of International and Public Affairs here. So I'm in public policy, right? I'm, I'm trying to train people that are going to go out and do public policy, and we're looking at what we can do better in public policy. 
We just finished a New York cyber task force. Uh, the report came out in uh, end of September, where we had a lot of the CISOs from from around New York. Some of the some people had been former policymakers. Uh, people, uh, was co-chaired by Phil Venables, Greg Rattray um, of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, and my dean here at SEPA, a woman named Merit Jaina, a former trade official. And we looked at what can we do to get cyberspace more defensible. And the heart of that was, if you go to the report of the brochure, if you, if you just look for New York Cyber Task Force, defensible cyberspace um, in your favorite search engine, the, the center two pages of the report is we look back over 50 years, what are the innovations that have helped to make cyberspace more defensible? So, um, and we break that into the, the innovations from technology, from operations, and from policy, and those that operate within the enterprise and across cyberspace as a whole. So the top left part of that chart is technology within the enterprise. That's where most of our experience is, right? This is, um, you know, it starts with passwords and firewalls and intrusion detection systems. You know, it's the stuff that we, that we buy, we purchase, we deploy. Um, that's where most of our, our measurement is. If we're getting pressure from our boards or from others to do stuff, that's where most of our fo attention is focused. Go to RSA conference or any other major conferences. That's where most of the solutions are going to be technology inside the enterprise. As a public policy guy, that's, that's the part I care about least. I'm much more interested in, for example, technology across, the uh, across cyberspace as a whole because that's where I get real leverage. Even the best technology that only operates within the enterprise, I've got to make sure it gets deployed a billion times correctly to really make sure that, it's gonna, that we're going to get um, leverage out of that. Compare that to um, technology that operates across cyberspace as a whole. When we were talking to, to experts in the field, without a doubt, they said the most important innovation that we have ever done was things like Windows Update. It wasn't necessarily cheap or easy for Microsoft to do Windows Update. But once we did it, you, you took users out of the solution. By just automatically updating, we were, instead of having to do the same thing a billion times, we did it once and it would be repeated a billion times. It's getting the, the, the massive scale of the internet to aid the defenders rather than the attackers. We also found, and I'll, and I'll finish, I'll, I'll take a pause after this, that we tend to overlook the operational innovations. Um, we had to invent computer emergency response teams in 1988 after the Morris worm, this worm that took down 10% of the internet. We had to invent information sharing and analysis centers in the 90s. Um, and we, so we're really pushing that we need to do more of this operational level collaboration and innovation to do things. Policy is where we've got the least experience. It's hardest to measure it. it it's more likely to create winners and losers. But it's really through the operational and the, and the public policy that we think we're going to get um, uh, much more significant gains in cyber in the, in the next couple of years. So with that, I want to maybe um, discuss your paper, building a defensive uh, – excuse me, defensible cyberspace. Yep. And I want to start off with maybe um, defining the problem space, sort of, you know, who, who are the players, who, you know, what, 
what is the medium, who are the players, and sort of, you know, describing the problem space as you see it, and then we'll, we'll parse it down and, and look at the individual parts. Yep. And, and so if I can phrase the, go back in the problem statement, you know, because I mentioned that the, the that cyber conflict history book, A First Domain, that we talked about last time. My favorite quote from that book uh, that I did as I was researching that book was, um, and maybe your your regular listeners will catch on to to the quote. It was few, if any, contemporary computer security controls can stop a dedicated red team from easily accessing any information sought. So I suspect many of your, your listeners will know a a red team is when you're in, in in cyber is when you are paying a team of friendly hackers to try and break into your system so that they can test the security. So this quote is saying those guys are always going to get they're pretty much always going to get through, and and it's a truism today. If you go to RSA conference or any of the other major conferences, you'll you'll hear that again and again in in vendor talks and others. But what it's essentially saying is that the attacker will always get through, that the attacker has the advantages in cyberspace. And what really got me depressed about that quote is that quote was from 1979. Um, Holy crap. And so, yeah, so essentially since 1979, um, you know, I, I, when I say this in front of audience, I say, why the hell does anybody listen to us? Why does anybody listen to us cybersecurity experts? I, I used to say we're the Chicago Cubs of the Internet, but I can't say that anymore, right? Since 1979, you know, the, the tens of billions of people of dollars that people have spent because of our recommendations, you know, the, the, the hundreds and thousands of patents, the thousands of companies that we've created, the, the, the millions of weekends that we've missed uh, in kids' birthday parties and soccer games and plays, right? All of that has been at best to break even. And right now, if you talk to most cyber defenders, they don't think we're breaking even. They think the attackers are still gaining ground or they're still running away from us even faster. So it comes down to why we've got to do something differently, right? If we, if we just keep thinking we're going to do more of the same, it's just crap. It hasn't worked since 1979, and there's no reason to believe that we're smarter or that we're putting more money or that we've got better concepts than, than what we've been doing. So that's why for this report, we said we've got to look across this, technology, operations, policy. We've got to make sure that the things that we do give us the most defense advantage, the most advantage to the defenders, at the greatest scale, at the least cost. And it's shocking how, how much, like, you'd think that makes sense, right? Yeah, we, we do the stuff that gives us some advantage, right? And it's, and it's amazing that it, that's actually not true, how much we do things like uh, checklist compliant, how much we do, you know, we deploy things only because we've always done it that way or the regulators say that we have to do it that way. So what we were really trying to get across in this report was um, uh, trying to look back historically where we've gotten the most defense advantage and then saying, all right, Here's the kind of stuff that we ought to do next where we'll get the most defense advantage. I'm sort of curious. Um, when, we, when we do look at the offense, what specifically is giving them the advantage? Because, I mean, when we... Oh, that's a great question, yeah. I mean, when we... And this was... Oh, God, sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I mean, when we discuss offense, it seems like there's such a range of actors. Like, so... 
um, you know, going from ransomware sort of proprietors to APT. So, I mean, you know, is, is when we describe the offense and its advantages, are we talking about, you know, specific actors and methods, or are we talking about, like, you know, sort of a Venn diagram of where, you know, phishing, you know, exploit writing, etc.? It's a great question. Thanks. The um, because in it's one of the most important things that we didn't that I, I we didn't have time to follow up in this in this report, and um, and now that I think about it, we've got a little bit left money left over, and I might try and do this because ours was defense focused, and we said here's the stuff that's given the defense the most advantage. Dmitry Alperovich, um, who many of your listeners might know, he was the co-founder of a group called CrowdStrike. And he's always trying to push the what's, what do things look like from the adversary's perspective. And, and so in the report, we did this a little bit, but not much as we would have liked, of saying, well, so if these technology operations and policies have most helped the defense, what are the technologies, the operations and uh, operational innovations and policies that have most helped the attackers? And so on the technology side, you've got um, – there were a lot of – Things around, for example, um, uh, point-and-click hacking, right? I mean, when I got into this business in the 90s, you you know everything was command line, right? And you had to have a pretty high level of knowledge um, to be able to uh, to hack. You know, it was it was you were typing all of the commands. Um, and by the you know in the late 90s and into the early 2000s, right, you had much more GUIs on that. You had more point-and-click. Now you've got things like Metasploit and these um, these other tools that make um, hacking incredibly easy, even if you don't have significant skills. And so that's that's some of the technology path. On the operations, operational innovations, right? On the on the defensive side, you had operational innovations like creating information sharing organizations. On the on the attacker side, you had innovations like um, Carter markets and cyber crime as a service, right? You had these specializations where different parts of the criminal underworld would would specialize, um, and they would have escrow services and the rest, so that you would have honor among thieves, um, if you will. Um, so that way they could scale really well and scale better operational concepts that allowed them to scale better than the defenders could scale. On the policy side, whereas the defenders would have policies like presidential directives that would, um, you know, say here's going to be a new cyber threat intelligence organization, um, or here's how, uh, you know, directing the FBI to share whenever they know that American company's been hacked. On the defensive, on the attacker side, they had policy innovations like sanctuaries, like agreements between the state and hacker groups that as long as you don't hack anything in our country and you only hack the Americans, then you're going to be fine and we're not going to bother you. And you saw that in eastern Ukraine, you saw that in Russia, you see that you saw that to some degree in China. And so it's a, it's, it's a great question um, and, and I think we'll, we'll try and do some follow-up work on that. Interesting. So, I mean, my last question on the offense is, um, you know, does the offense sort of do they do management innovations? Because it almost seems like in order to go from <clears throat> typical crime and sort of 
ransomware production to, um, you know, organized AP le- APT level activity, that it's not about technology, it's about sort of evolving, you know, sort of a management or sort of bureaucratic support. So I, I know for defense, we, we obviously have a lot of bureaucracy and management, but on, on the offense, I mean, do you see management innovations, bureaucratic innovations, or is it really just about, you know, hacking and sort of, you know, lowering the barrier to be effective, you know, via, you know, hacking, so to speak? Yeah, and, and uh, there was a lot of work by, you know, I probably some of the first times I was reading was Derek Mankey and others back in 2013 where they were talking about cybercrime as a service, right? So we're, we're almost five years into this of, of you'd see these specializations, trust models, these these ways that the hackers could um, uh, could come together. I don't want to I don't want to say hack hackers is the wrong term to use here. Um, or the cyber criminals would come together in different ways to to monetize their business, right? Maybe it started with the Carter markets and these websites where you could um, uh, sell uh, credit cards, and then they had to, you know they would do innovations like. All right, we'll give you a couple um, a couple numbers free so you can try them out and make sure that the numbers are good, and we'll have escrow services so that way you can make sure you're going to be um, uh, uh, that this is going to be this this is going to be safe. You know, rating system. You know that hey, I'm I'm a, I'm a 4.9 stars in the kinds of credit card numbers that you know stolen credit card numbers and credentials that I give you. So a lot of the things that you'd um, that we developed on um, in cyberspace for commerce, um, they were taking those innovations for commerce and using them for, for a crime against that commerce. And that's better than what the defenders did, right? The defenders, we tended to have classification and, um, and trust models that were built around personally knowing the other people that you were dealing with so that you could be good to share. Um, and so uh, there's because they were built on models of commerce rather than models of paranoid security, cautious security, uh, they tended to scale much better on the criminal side than we did on the on the defense. So with that with that in mind, I want to maybe switch over to describing the defenders because it, it seems like to me that um, defense is so much more complex because I feel like, you know, not only do you have the technological innovations, you know, monitoring, logging, firewalls, etc., but you also have a distinctly human problem. So, to use that from my day job, it was basically like we had to teach people how not to get fished or what to look for. And when discussing that, you know, that problem, not getting fished. It was. It wasn't even technological. The conversation we had with people wasn't even technological. It was paranoia, not paranoia, but critical thinking. You know, did you really receive an email from Amazon Rewards, um, etc. And and I use that to describe because the defense seems. You know, the it, it entails so much. So I mean, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. And- and that's where we're really in the in this paper trying to push. Um, we've got to do the things that are going to work at the greatest scale at the least cost, and that gives the most defense advantage. 
because some, if we're only operating in that upper left area of technology that operates in the enterprise, then you t most of the solutions add complexity. Um, and, and, and that gets as you say, right? I mean, e even, as, even as someone that's working in this business, I find it very difficult to try and keep myself fully secure, or not fully secure, but, right? I mean, the amount of things that you have to do and the amount of complexity um, even if just for you as a person, much less um, for uh, for a large-scale enterprise, a sector, a nation, or cyberspace as a whole. So, um, so you're right. That's incredibly, incredibly difficult. So the recommendations that push are where can we get the simplest solutions um, that are going to be effective? So um, many of your listeners that are listening, especially if they're within Washington, D.C., might be surprised how much we recommend cloud computing and cloud storage. Um, I've spent enough time in D.C. that all of the conversations around cloud go, yes, but. Yes, it's a great technology and you can save costs, but it is not really particularly secure and you've got to be very cautious. We had some of the best chief information security officers in the business. Phil Venable from Goldman Sachs, Ed Amoroso from AT&T, and they, their conversation, so when they were talking about cloud, I'm waiting, like, oh, they're talking about cloud, man, this is going to be, they're going to get snapped. And the conversation in this group was all yes and. Yes, this is amazing technology, and we haven't even begun to see the security benefits of it yet. Now, it's not risk-free. Um, you can't just go to the cloud and imagine that you're going to be secure. It takes time uh, and motivation to do it correctly. But the risks that you're buying with cloud are much more manageable than the risks that you're giving up. And, it really, um, and so it re can really reduce the complexity. And, and I'll mention one other. Um, we, we, uh, in the report, we really push transparency as a way to get, you know, reduce this complexity that you talk about. Uh, if I were doing the report again, I don't think I'd use the word transparency. We, we probably mean visibility or openness. Uh, and, and here's an example of what I mean. The, we've been talking for years about how to get software vendors to write better code for their devices. Um, you know, we talk about regulation, we talk about insurance, we talk about naming and shaming, we talk about legislation, we talk about all sorts of stuff. That's all really hard to get done right. Consumer Reports is going to start listing a cybersecurity rating alongside the other ratings in their magazine. So that if you're looking at a new phone, if you're looking at new electronic devices, if you're looking at a new connected refrigerator, there's going to be a rating for cybersecurity. Now, again, it might not be easy um, or cheap for Consumer Reports to get that right, but just think about how that's going to align market incentives and drive consumer behavior and drive what the vendors do. It's not going to need any new regulation. It's not going to need any new legislation. Um, but that, that's what we're looking for. Where are those places where you, we can use the smallest amount of effort that's going to align the market forces and, and lead to significantly more defensible cyberspace. And, and to me, that, again, I call it currency um, because it's a, line, it's a little bit of information to align these market incentives. And that's what we're really trying to get done with this in, in this report. I'm sort of curious, then, where do we put sort of the business aspect and the risk management when it comes to defense? Because I think there was yeah. somebody who was um, 
you know, dis I was discussing it with somebody around the Target hack was Target stock didn't really take a hit. And then when you discuss about all the other incumbent lawsuits that came, all the lawsuits that came afterwards, they basically amounted to maybe a hundred million, two hundred million dollars, which, <clears throat> you know, to somebody like Target, a hundred million dollars is, is nothing in, in a relative way. So, I mean, you know, when we discuss risk management and the business side of things, how does that relate to the defense that we can build and sort of create? Yeah, the uh, on one hand, I'm um, so on one hand, I'm very pleased because we've got things like the SEC guidance. So uh, your your listeners might not know this, but a couple years ago, maybe even five years ago, the SEC came out with guidance that said if your company has had a, a cyber incident or a cyber risk that's materially significant, and it's left up to the board to decide what materially significant is, you should tell your shareholders. It, it's six-page six regulation. Um, and to me, that's, that's the kind of thing that as a public policy guy I like, because it, it's six pages. Um, and it helped drive some of the right behavior so that we could at least start getting some of this transparency to the shareholders so that we can hold companies accountable. You're right. For, for Target, the effect on the share price was pretty minimal. Um, J.P. Morgan's share price actually, I think, went up after, uh, you know, in, the, in the weeks after their breach. Um, but more importantly for Target, isn't what happened to the share price is that um, people were losing their jobs and, and, directors, were, and directors and managers were being hold, held accountable. Um, I think Yahoo is potentially more significant in this, um, where you saw um, the share price less for billion dollars um, of shareholder value got got wiped out because of because of that. Um, so now that's driving behavior of board directors. It's driving behavior of people involved in M and A's. You know, the bankers and lawyers that are involved in mergers and acquisitions are now much more likely to get involved and, and ask the tough questions on cybersecurity and if, and, and if the intellectual property has walked out the door. I think Equifax also, you're going to see this. I mean, um, uh, the, the dismantlement of that, of that as a business. So uh, I think we're getting there. And, and to me, if, if I could convince one person in the world to take cybersecurity seriously, it wouldn't be the president of the United States, not this president, not previous presidents. Um, it wouldn't be to any chancellor or, or prime minister. Um, it would be Warren Buffett. Because if I could convince Warren Buffett to take cyber risk seriously in the way that your, your, your question suggests, then I'm on the front of every business newspaper. Um, every board director around the world is going to say, what's a, what's a NIST cybersecurity framework? How do I do this? Boy, boy Warren thinks that's serious. So I want to maybe talk about Equifax for, Equifax for a moment because when we look at Equifax as a sort of risk, it seems like they had, I mean, consolidated a lot of personal data. And, you know, I, I think a similar argument would apply to trans, Transparency. I always forget the, the other two yeah, yeah, yeah. credit agencies. But, I mean, when we talk about defense, I mean – it seems like a, a simple innovation for Equifax would have been, you know, taking mitigation seriously in the sense of, you know, A, not storing all that personal data, and then B, sort of taking cybersecurity more seriously. But, 
I mean, how do we factor in companies that make their money purely on the storage and selling of data? I mean, it, it seems yep. like that's that's a huge risk. Yeah, for you know, on one hand, as focusing in public policy, I'm less concerned about individual companies, right? They're gonna, um, they've got shareholders. I meant to hold them responsible, and so for me, as a public policy, in public policy, you know, I've got to have some concern about critical infrastructure. But I, I think that large, you know, much of that is gonna is gonna sort. I, I want to find one of the best ways that I can help sort that uh, sort out most smoothly. Um, yeah, cer- certainly on Equifax, right? They, a, a lot of my transformative moments after I left the military were my time at Goldman Sachs, where you had Lloyd Blankfein, you had the other leadership of the company saying, up front, we know we're an IT company that happens to do finance. We know we've got to take uh, cybersecurity seriously. And obviously, um, Equifax what did not approach that the same way. When I, when I talk to CFOs, or especially in finance sector, about this, I, I phrase this as, this is a franchise-ending bet, right? In, in, in equities trading, stock trading, right? you talk about a long position where you own a lot of this stock. Um, and I say, this is the longest position that this company owns, is this bet on information technology. And no way would, you, would, would your bank ever make this big, have owned this long a position with as little hedge as we've got. You know, your hedge right now is the small amount of money that you've spent in business continuity, on cybersecurity, on crisis management. Um, and your firms are going to end as you know it. You will go bankrupt. You will stop just like Lehman stopped because of if things go wrong on the, on the technology bets that you've made. And, right, Equifax did not catch on that it could be the end of their company. Um, if they if they don't take this seriously now again that that kind of language works very smoothly with um, with finance companies and so a lot of uh, as I've been learning to communicate in this space is what's that right analogy for that board for those managers so they get this they get this right right saying data is the new oil doesn't quite doesn't quite get it there but we need to help figure out the right ways for folks to figure out that this is the end of their business if they don't get it right and we now we're getting more and more examples of places where it is, you know, where what motivates board directors is getting fired, um, of being embarrassed as a director, right? I mean, if you're one of the Equifax board directors, and I heard the other day, one of the one of their board directors was, um, if I'm getting this right, was the some former like chairman or CEO of Citrix, you know, the significant technology company. Um, so right, that guy's, you know, people like that, their their reputation is going to be trashed. Like, oh man, you're on the board of, uh, of Equifax. And it's that kind of personal stuff that I think um, can really help drive the behavior on the boards. So I want to maybe um, switch to sort of a, a general picture about the big players in this field. You know, in, in the paper, you refer to the U.S. government, the role of IT and cybersecurity companies, and the role of sort of IT-driven organizations. And I want to start with the U.S. government and what... I think a lot of people see is the big issue with the U.S. government, and that's consistency between administrations. So you might have sort of the Obama administration that might be interested in cybersecurity, and then you have the Trump administration that, I mean, for all its controversies, I like, like I sort of struggled in trying to find, you know, other than 
you know, trying to find a, a sort of concrete thought or document on cybersecurity from the Trump administration. Maybe, you know, you, you know, as a public policy guy, you, you might know better. But, I mean, how do we, you know, deal with that? The, the consistency between administrations, you know, the consistency between Congresses on cybersecurity. Yeah, the... You know, there's, there has been pretty significant continuity with this administration and the previous. The, um, the, the main thing that this administration has done, uh, Executive Order 1800, you know, could easily have been written by, by a, a Democratic administration if, if the election would have gone differently. And, and by the way, the, the, we're, the 13800, that new executive order, is very much in line with, um, with our New York Cyber Task Force, uh, New York, yeah, with the New York Cyber Task Force, right? I mean, it's pushing shared services, which is DC speak for cloud. Um, it talks about um, moving more to a single cybersecurity framework, uh, uh, particularly the NIST cybersecurity framework. Um, it it talks about a lot of stuff that is that is that is about defensible cyberspace. Um, and it doesn't surprise me. Tom Tom Bossert, um, uh, the Homeland Security Advisor, that was the the prime per- person pushing that, um, you know, we'd we'd talk to him about about the work and in the Atlantic Council work um, that it was rooted in, and um, when we briefed him on it, uh, it was great. He had his, his he had his little blue highlighter out, and he was highlighting a lot of these innovations uh, in the center of the report, um, and so there has been continuity in general, uh, even back to the first president that started taking this seriously, and, and Bill Clinton. Um, through Bush, through through Obama, and now he's kind of the fourth president. Um, you can see the kind of continuity going through. So then, what is, in, in in your view, what is the government's you know most effective form of leverage? Yeah. I mean, is it a matter of regulations and laws, or is it a matter of sort of funding and sort of the government being able to take a loss but creating intellectual property? What is what is the government's yeah, great, great question. The it's certainly true in cyber conflict, and and it's more generally true for for cybersecurity. And, and this is a lesson that goes back to my to, to, to my book, which was it was astounding as we went back and we looked at these cyber conflicts, in that almost none of the major cyber conflicts or or major cyber crises had been decisively resolved by government, any government, um, ever. Um, the few times where the governments were decisive were was the was when it was the governments themselves that were under attack. You know, for example, like um, Operation Buckshot Yankee or, or or espionage against government. When when the attack has been much larger, like uh, the Conficker malware that hit a couple of years ago, or or WannaCry or the rest, it's always and I and I pretty much mean always. The private sector that has the dominant role in 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 the response in stopping the the bad activity that's just happened, and so oh to tie this into what that how that actually happens. So in cyber crises, is the private sector that has um, the agility, the subject matter expertise, and they have their hands deep in cyberspace. Uh, and what I mean by that, one of, one of my uh, former colleagues um, from the, uh, my time in the military, a guy named Mark Sachs, uh, he used to work for Verizon. And he said, Jay, remember, at Verizon, we're creating and maintaining cyberspace every day. 
we can bend it if we need to. Um, and I love that phrase of, of the private sector can bend cyberspace if it's, need, if it's needed to help the defense. Government can't do any of that. Government stinks at agility. They don't have a, enough subject matter experts, and they certainly don't have that ability to bend cyberspace, at least Western governments. But what governments do bring is they bring massive resources, at least most governments, certainly the U.S. government. Tied to that is staying power. And also they bring access to other levers of power. And you've got the bully pulpit of the president to get up and speak about it. You've got diplomacy, um, demarches, um, raising people up on charges, indicting them, or, you know, the military, you know, stabbing them asleep, right? I mean, that's something that governments can do and is difficult for the private sector to do. Um, and so the best solutions are those that can bring that agility, subject matter expertise, and the ability to change cyberspace with those strengths of the government, the resources, the staying power, and the access to other levers of power. So we're, we're always on the lookout, especially for me in public policy, what are those spaces where we can do that, um, where you can bring these, these kinds of things to bear? So then, I mean, in terms of boundaries, you know, you know what can sort of, you know, maybe let me reframe the question. When should a private company sort of rely on the government and when shouldn't it? Because it seems like <clears throat> you have something like WannaCry that was, if I remember correctly, was attacking hospitals, you know, and, and essentially... Attacking everybody, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, infrastructure. I mean, when is it appropriate for, you know, a hospital or a private entity to sort of cross the line and say... We need government help or, you know, but to what's invite government, government? going to do, right? I mean, to me, right. and it's, a, it's, it's a good question, but at the end of the day, I, I come back, I, I, I like to flip that around and say, well, what the hell can government actually do? Um, and so you end up with this, well, what, what can they do? And then you've got to match that across of, okay, what can we, um, when is it okay to ask them for different things? Because if we only look at the... Uh, when people ask that only in when can companies ask the government for help, you end up with a certain set of answers that government can't possibly live up to. They don't have the capacity. They don't have the authorities. And frankly, we don't want them to have the authorities to do those things. And so um, I like to, to where I start, I end up with, so, so rather than answer it, let, let me say here's, here's a way that helped me come up with my own answers. And so that in the, you and the listeners to this can, can, can use this as the thought experiment to help them as they come up with their own answers to this. I like to flip it around and say, all right, imagine that America is at cyber war, that a, a nation state is using cyber capabilities. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of, of, of casualties from this. We're clearly looking to DHS to solve us from this, but it's now the military. Um, and you know, you can imagine that uh, it's that there is a not a kinetic element to this yet. And like we're not rolling tanks across the border, but you know, treat this just as a thought experiment that we're now in cyber war. What now is the government going to be doing? Um, so you can say, all right, well, clearly, if we're in that space, then the military 
needs to be attacking back the attacks. Well, how does that happen? Imagine the attacks are against the finance sector. And if the attacks don't stop by 8 p.m. tonight, then the banks aren't going to be able to clear and settle in time, and they're not going to be able to open in the morning. Well, how does that information get from the finance sector to the Department of Defense so the Department of Defense knows what they need to do? You know, in, in national security terms, it's call for fires, right? So how does that call for fires go from whom in the finance sector to whom in the defense? Or imagine it's the energy sector and in the electricity grid. Um, how do we get intelligence from the private sector defenders, I mean, to the private sector defenders? And that's the tear line, right? Not just something that gets declassified through some lengthy process that then gets handed to DHS that they then send as a tear line to the banks. How do you include the private sector that are now going to be in that, you know, the forward edge of the battle area? How do we include them into every aspect of the intelligence cycle? How do they submit requirements? Because they're the ones that are actually fighting the battle. How does that get submitted? Um, how do we run through the, the full cycle all the way through dissemination and feedback to make sure that they're able to win the war? And, right, and, and you start walking through this, and now that maybe this is only applicable at real cyber war, but at least it's a thought experiment that you can, all right, well, what if it's not fully cyber war? What if it's just a really, what if it's a little bit not quite so bad, and then a little bit not quite so bad as that, and a little bit not quite so bad as that? And instead of imagining things as they are today and imagining they're a little bit worse, um, start working your way down. I call it black and white. It's tough to answer these questions now because it's so murky to try and figure out what the government should do to help. And any time we just say, well, I'd imagine it's a little bit worse, all we're doing is we're turning our, on our high beams in that fog. And turning on your high beams in the fog just means you get to see more fog. So I like imagining that bl place where it's really black and white and then imagining that clarity and how far down that clarity extends. Um, and at some point, you're going to meet in the middle. So whenever we hit those questions, let's start flipping that question around to ways that are more answerable. Let's pick the most answerable end, um, uh, uh, border case and then figure out how much, how much use we get out of that. So I maybe want to, for my last question, discuss something that's not uh -huh. in the paper, which is in your paper, it's it's very much sort of network defense, right? Where you're going to, this is how you defend the network, this is how you defend cyberspace. But I think in the last year or so, we, you know, with the Brexit campaign, with the 2016 <laughs> U.S. election, yep. we saw sort of, you know, you, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a metasploit magician to be effective at hacking. And what I'm what I'm trying to focus yeah. on is, you know, where do we factor in sort of broadly the intersection of social media and society? And more yeah. specific, you know, how do we integrate Facebook into and Twitter into this? Because, you know, they were hacked, but like I mean, you know, reading through the papers, the DHS paper and all this, it really seems like you know, whoever was attacking was using Facebook as intended or using Twitter as intended. So where do we folk put in, you know, factor in? Yeah, we really, we, we, we really, um, well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, we really messed up 
uh, when I got into this field in the 90s, the, we were all talking about information operations and information warfare. Hacking was just one part of that, um, but also counter-propaganda influence in the rest. Uh, we would have been much, much better equipped for what the Russians did to us in 1999 um, uh, than in 2016. Much, much better equipped. And it was really 2003, 2004, when the offense mission for cyber got assigned to NSA that we just forgot about information operations and focused on the cool technical cyber thing. Um, you know, we banished uh, info ops to National Defense University, and then we and then we forgot about National Defense University. Um, and so, it's it, without a doubt, it's incredibly difficult. Um, but we we just got really dumped in the U.S. government. Um, so, you know, my my solutions tend to go down a couple different ways. Um, uh, the solutions that I like best specific to social media are looking at the money and what we can do to control the control the flow of money right and a lot of a lot of these issues deal with how the companies have have monetized uh, attention um, and one of my favorite examples was um, one of the banks I believe it was JP Morgan um, was getting complaints their ads were popping up um, maybe not on Daily Stormer, but you know some sites that were um, that were exceptionally questionable, um, and they decided that they were going to go to whitelist advertising um, and say we're only going to advertise on this list of you know say 400 sites, and they found that they spent less money on ads and they got and they got a higher click through rate, and so to me those kinds of solutions, those where we're looking at changing the monetary ecosystem, especially on the fake news, um, on the fake news sites, on, you know, the deliberate sites that are, that are, that are producing uh, fake news, like those that are coming out of, of, of Eastern Europe. Um, if more companies are doing that, then we can hopefully starve some of them uh, of the money that they need. And, and, and we can do that without getting into these tough questions about um, what is fake news, right? Just by just by companies deciding on their advertising spend that we might be able to make gains in things like that. Now, within government and tying it to, to cyber, um, it's very, very difficult for, for U.S. government in any shape in this, right? It should be anyone other than the Department of Defense that's, that's in charge of countering adversary influence. Um, DOD is just not the right agency for that. It should be someone like state, um, but with the way states cutting headcount right now and mission, um, it, there's not much that we can expect there. Um, the the ideas, the kinds of ideas that I've been liking most is where can we use DOD um, in easier ways for parts of the problem. So what the North Koreans did, what the Russians did, was they they hacked. And then they used the fruits of that hack for influence campaigns. So to me, right now at, at U.S. Cyber Command, we've got um, the Cyber Mission Force, right? So we've got this dedicated group of up to 6,000, you know, of, of their probably around 6,000 people now on their way to 6,200. And you've got Russia experts and China experts and North Korea experts and Iran experts sitting next to cyber experts. Um, we could add something like um, cyber influence teams as a new part of the cyber mission. And they are there 
um, to look at when our adversaries are using cyber capabilities as part of influence operations. So that when they see, wait a minute, why are the, why are the Russians hacking this target? Is it espionage or are they going to try and weaponize this information? And they are specifically there to try and um, uh, track that kind of activity and feed its way up through the DOD chain to the White House. Now, again, they shouldn't be the only ones. That should, there should also be folks working on the state and across the national security enterprise. Um, but to me, it's most solvable uh, within the Department of Defense as a near-term thing. So I'm, I'm sort of curious about, um, as a matter of public policy and sort of skill set development, um, and, and the story I, I want to tell is um, when, I was, when I was getting into InfoSec and working at Help Desk, um, I had a mentor in D.C., and I said, you know, this <clears throat> SEO and how sort of search engines index stuff is really cool. And she said, you know, what you really want to do is get into forensics, like offense, defense, and sort of that field because, you know, that's where the future is. And now that was in, I think, 2012, 2013. And then... <laughs> You know, in, in 2016, I have debates with people on Twitter, di di discussions about how, you know, we, we for the last 10 years, we focused on building tech skills, tech skills, tech skills. And it turns out, much to your point, that, you know, those humanity skills, the language skills, cultural, are just as needed. So when we talk about mm -hmm. public policy and sort of skill development at the university level or at sort of the self-teaching level, I mean, should we be integrating more of the humanities and sort of, I, I love this phrase, but I'm going to say it, the, the soft skills or? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. The, you know, one of my uh, big conversations I've had in this was a woman named Bobby Stempley. And uh, she had been, um, uh, in the late 90s, I was working with her when she was running the Department of Defense Computer Emergency Response Team. I mean, a har hardcore tech. Um, and then she was a deputy secretary at DHS, and um, and she was like, "Oh man, I'm," and the way she the way she tells it, like, "I'm going to eat these policy folks alive because they don't know nothing, and I'm this, you know, this this hardcore tech ninja." And and it's wonderful to hear her tell it because she doesn't understand anything of what's going on because policy is a different kind of thing, and, and even though she knows these great technical solutions. She doesn't understand how to get those solutions implemented within within DC. Um, that even if they may make sense technically, they might not make sense for other for other reasons. And and she she explores how she makes her way around that to know what the public policy tools are, right? Um, and and I work for an international affairs public policy school, so so I'm dealing with this every day. You know where I'm trying to mostly get these folks that don't understand the technology and help them to understand the technology as best they can so that they can look at different solutions. All of my best conversations have been with people like Richard Bate, like, like, like Dimitri Alperovitch or Jeff Moss, um, who have said, I know I can't make a difference. There's only a limited difference I can make on the technology anymore. I've, so they've said I, they have to start getting involved on the policy side as well. Now, one of my favorite... Um, and, and here's an example of what I can mean if we if we come at this from a po public policy lens, right? If you've got a problem of botnets or or um, the DOS attacks that come from it, 
um, technology solutions say, all right, we'll try and measure it. We'll try and go um, and go to folks and try and get these, you know, the DDoS networks down. We'll try and control um, uh, uh, BCP38 or network protocol, and and work through the technology plane. From a from a policy side, you can say, what does cap and trade look like? Um, you know, if you run a network connected to the internet, you are allowed to have this much botnet pollution, and if you go above this level, then you're going to get taxed above that level. You've got to buy, buy a license from someone else that runs a cleaner network. Right? It's a different way of thinking about the same problem, but it gives you this, this much, much broader tool set. So I, I think with that, we, we've covered a lot today, and as always, we before you leave, uh, leave us with some closing thoughts, something to chew on, something to sort of consider. Um, well, I think if I can leave you with something, it might be on the on, on this last point of of this over this this connection between technology and policy. I think especially for your listeners, um, we have a series of events, and it's called the Cyber Nine Twelve Student Challenge. And so the next one is going to be coming up in March at American University in Washington D.C. And it is a we bring together um, students. It is the largest national security cyber policy competition. That is, the students are here to come together to fast-breaking cyber incident to say, Mr. President, no one has yet died from this cyber attack, so it's too early to think about NATO Article 5, but we can consider sanctions, NATO Article 4, um, and here are some options for covert action. So it's not, a, it's not a hacking competition, but it's the students coming together um, to, to dive in onto the policy side. And we call it Cyber 912 because most of us that do cyber, we roll our eyes um, when we hear Cyber 911 or Cyber Pearl Harbor. So we decided let's make that mean something. Not what happens on Cyber 911, but what happens the day after. How do you respond to this very bad cyber incident? And so um, I'm, I'm pleased to announce that uh, Deborah Lee James, the uh, former Secretary of the Air Force, is, gonna, is the chairman. This, I'm sorry, is the, the chair of the, of the Cyber 912 Student Challenge this year. And so uh, we're expecting a really great competition. Last year we had 46 expect more this year. We're also in 2018 going to be having competitions in London, um, I think in February as well. It's going to be the first year in London, and I believe our fourth year in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, we also had one last uh, in October in Sydney, Australia, and we'll be popping around hopefully some for, for some other events around the globe. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so cool. <laughs> of course, sure thing.